Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I was conscripted by my immediate superior to this position. I, I asked Eric the other day, I said, you know, after hearing about all these great missionaries and the way that they operate and the way that they lived their life and were faithful to the end and everything, I said, you know, what we really need, or no, I didn't say it that way. I said, what you really need to do is have a session on how they were prepared for this. And the next day I get this text from Eric that says, that's a great idea. <laughs> And here I am. <laughs> so, I titled it, Train Up a Missionary in the Way He Should Go. And I was just sharing with Arnold an interesting point about this life. <clears throat> you remember in Acts when uh, Jesus was talking to the disciples. And he's saying, Acts? Yeah. You find red letters in Acts if you look really hard. It says... And you, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. So you think about that, and you think, okay, how far out of Jerusalem did they really get? Because if we look at about chapter 6 or 7, it says that all the Christians were still in Jerusalem and God sent a great persecution. What for do you think? Because they were still in Jerusalem and God had told them to go. And they were still in Jerusalem. They hadn't even made it to Judea yet. So God sent a great persecution. And so we look around ourselves today. What do we find? Things aren't comfortable where we are. Things are going to get worse. My theory, not my theory, my philosophy of the end times. I'll share with you my end time philosophy. Things are going to get worse and worse. A lot of people are going to get hurt. And Jesus is going to win. So don't concern yourself about eschatology anymore, okay? <laughs> so <clears throat> the dilemma that we find in a is how did these guys, these missionaries like Stanley Dale and um, the rest of the ones that we know of, uh, the Darlene and her husband Russell and even Jim and uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Don Richardson, his wife Carol. How did they, did you know that, that Don was married to Carol Joy? And then after she died, he married Carol Joyce. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, anyway, the, how did they become who they were? 
And when we look now, I don't know if you're familiar, there's, a, there's an organization in, I think it's in California, and it's called the um, William Carey um, Missionary Association or Institute or something like that. It, it does research, produces a lot of um, research on missionaries. And I got one of their books and studied it and found out that the attrition rate, which means leaving early and unexpectedly, that's what attrition normally means, that when a company downsizes by attrition, it means that if anybody leaves, they don't replace them. Anybody retires, they don't replace them. It has to do with leaving. And in the, the realm of the missionaries, it's when they leave early and unexpectedly. And we don't think much about that, but if you read, for example, Nick Ripkin in The uh, Insanity of, of Obedience, he makes the comment that it's not enough to go anymore. You have to stay. That staying is actually more important than going because going and not staying produces fear in the people that you have gone to because the normal reason that you go is one kind of fear or another. I mean, the, one, the reason you don't stay is one kind of fear or another. So the attrition rate for missionaries, if on a January of a year, let's say January of 2020, for that all the missionaries for three years were sent out at that point in time. Do you understand what I mean by that? If on January 1st of 2020, all the missionaries for 2020, 2021, and 2022 were sent out, three years worth of missionaries, at the end of the first year, 5,000 have attrited. That's a lot of missionaries. At the end of the second year, another 10,000 have attrited. And at the end of the third year, another 15,000. So at the end of three years, of all the missionaries sent out during that three-year period, and this is for Western missionaries, Western Europe, Canada, United States, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, they're sending 15,000 have attrited and in their own terms are damaged goods. And it usually takes seven years before they're able to function normally in the body of Christ again. That's just amazing. I mean, devastating to think that. So how did these guys go and stay? So the dilemma. Here's the statement by a gentleman named L.E. Maxwell. He said, We need militancy in our faith before we shall get anywhere fighting the forces arrayed against us in these days. A soft life, a soft faith, a soft message, all these sum up the average Christian life. And you may have heard me say, that's not the normal Christian life. Even among so-called deeper life people, we speak not of modernists, for we have long maintained that the main trouble with the church is not its infidelic modernism and falsehood, as hellish as that is, but it's the deadness of those who name the name of Christ. Their utter indolence 
and indifferent to the perishing souls all around them. They have lost their testimony. Laziness and secret sin have stopped their mouths. Their heads hang in the presence of the devil and his crowd. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Oh, that the flame of battle might once more be seen in the testimony of God's sagging servants. So he has a, a Sandy McConaughey, Ellie Maxwell did. She was an older lady. She was the dean of women at Prairie Bible Institute. And she worked with him from age 55 to age 75. I think it was 71 okay from age 55 to age 71 she was the Dean of Women at Prairie Bible Institute so here in her 1934 diary she has a quote from Hudson Taylor and it says pray on and labor on don't be afraid of the toil don't be afraid of the cross they will pay well it's a great blessing when God gives one a hunger for souls a good many of our early workers had that. You think, Ooh, that's an interesting statement. <laughs> How we get better, no, we get better people now in some ways, better educated and so on, but it is not often that you find one with a hunger for souls. People willing to live anywhere and endure anything, if only souls may be saved. They're very often humble people, and if they were to offer themselves to the China Inland Mission now, they wouldn't be accepted. And remember, Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. But nothing can take, it pla take its place or make up for the lack of it. It is so much more important than any ability. And in another area, she points out that that means academic and intellectual ability. So what, she's, what Hudson Taylor is saying there is that Without a hunger for souls, all the education is of no avail. There has to be something else. So that excerpt was from the Journal of Hudson Taylor. Uh, Taylor's words are entered in the back of the 1934 diary of Dorothy Ruth Miller, who at the time was the dor women's dorm superintendent at a fledgling Bible school in the middle of Alberta called Prairie Bible Institute. Like her missionary forerunner, Miller saw the Christian life as a twofold spiritual struggle. On the one hand, there was the daily struggle of living the crucified life of self-denial, and on the other hand, one was also engaged in the spiritual battle to save souls from a lost eternity. In both of these tasks, the spiritual life, zeal, and character of the individual believer was counted as much more valuable than any skills and abilities that she may have, may have possessed, especially if those abilities had been nurtured in institutions of higher academic learning and stamped with the imprimatur of a scholarly degree. So it's an interesting position because what does it take now to go to the mission field? More often than not, it takes a degree of one kind or another. So... We have, from these diaries, three dominant themes that emerge. First, there's the monastic-like commitment to prayer and devotional life that was at Prairie Bible Institute. Second, 
Miller draws frequent attention to the culture of scarcity that they practiced at the school. All of the leadership and all the students were there strictly on a pray-in basis. If they didn't get, if they didn't pray in food, they didn't have food. Oftentimes, it was so cold up there that their their uh, student and uh, faculty housing building had snow on the floor of it, and they had to wear boots and jackets and gloves and hats inside the building. And there were, there were people who gave, and when they gave, they would take whatever amount they gave and divide it by the number of students and faculty there and distribute to each one. So if they got $10 and there was 10 people, each person would get a dollar. Now, they didn't charge anything for tuition, so they got no payment that way. They, at, at various times, at the very beginning, they charged right around $3 a month for room and board. But the students had to bring everything, their own mops, brushes, brooms, uh, bedding, pillows, mattresses, sheets, blankets, wash rags, everything. There was nothing that was supplied except a room to stay in. And so this was the culture of scarcity that a lot of people flee home from. It's really easy when you're in the middle of a culture of scarcity and you happen to have a phone number of a friend in the West who you know is willing to buy your flight home. Third, there's the overriding concern for students to heed the call to missionary service. So all three of these themes come through the interpretive grid of Miller's Christian and Missionary Alliance Holiness Theology. The belief that only the crucified life was the measure of one's faith. So to, to the amount that you were in Christ, crucified and risen with him, was your faith valid or true? So, I said something about a heritage of Christian institutions. That was the wrong order. Before that, I want to talk about missionaries with hungry souls. And I really enjoyed finding out about Stanley Dale. We don't have a picture of him. Can we go back to the picture of Stanley Dale that isn't him? <laughs> yeah, there he isn't. So, Stanley Dale was one of the really early missionaries. He was, he was the first of, in a line that, that we've been talking about. And so his training, we think, what was his training like? What do you think his training was like? Well, the first thing that he, he grew up, did you cover this early on in his childhood? So his alcoholic father and, and his un unpresent mother and all of the beatings and the battles and the struggles and everything that we, he went to. And then he, he read If, if you remember that, and it, it made him realize that he could be a man if. And so at that point he began to change and he finally ended up joining the military. He joined the army. And he served with distinction in the army, with honors in the army. And he was asked to become an officer, and so he went to officer's training school. 
and he graduated from officer's training school with honors and with distinction. And during the time that he was in the army, he went, spent a lot of time in Borneo, Papua New Guinea, or Papua New Guinea, and the whole area there. But then he heard about something. So here he is, a successful ranking officer in the military, serving well, and he heard about something. The Australian military was creating a company of commandos. And he says, that's what I want to do. So he actually resigned his commission because they only allowed uh, enlisted personnel in the commandos. So this is the first of the special operations uh, companies that the Australian Army ever had. And so he was right in the middle of it, right from the very beginning. And he served in that until the end of the war. During that time, when he saw the mountains in uh, Indonesia, he knew that that's where God wanted him. So he went to Sydney Missionary Bible and Missionary Training College in Sydney, Australia. So that's where he was. And he graduated from that. Then we have Russell and Darlene Dibler. They spent between two and three years in training at Nyack Missionary Training Institute in uh, New York, and then six months in Holland in an intensive language study to learn the Dutch language. So we look at Stanley Dale, his training, five, six years in the military, four years at Sydney Bible Training College. We look at the Diblers, three years at Nyack, six months in Holland, three and a half years of training. Ernie and Ruth Presswood also went to Nyack Missionary Training Institute for three to four years. R.A. Jaffrey was at Nyack Missionary Training Institute for four years before he went. I couldn't find anything on Otto and Carol Koning concerning their training. That's just sort of not something that I could find, but I believe that they were. Phyllis, Phil and Phyllis Masters, gradu- she graduated from the University of South Dakota. I don't know where he graduated from, but at a point in time, they were both at Cornell College, which is now Cornell University, working on masters and PhDs and some stuff, linguistics and so forth. And they took a season off to go to Prairie Bible Institute for missionary training. Because the linguistics and the cultural, cross-cultural stuff that they were, they were learning at Cornell, they re- realized it wasn't training them. Then there's Don and Carol Richardson, who were at Summer Institute of Ling- Linguistics for several years. Um, it's only a summer long, though. And for, at Prairie Bible Institute for four years. And all of this was after they got the other training that they had in life. Their military training, their college training, their uh, business training, all these different things that they had. They were mature men and women who recognized, I have a call in my life for missions, and I need preparation. I need to be prepared. So I put together a lineage of missionary training institutes, and I was talking about Henry Groton, who was born in 1835, Irish Protestant Christian preacher. He was the great evangelist of the Evangelical Awakening and the lead preacher during the Ulster Arrival. He, he actually oversaw the salvation of thousands who were saved. I mean, he preached 
and the Spirit of the Lord fell, and people were saved. He was responsible for training and sending hundreds of faith missionaries all over the world himself without any training institute. And that's why his friend, um, Hudson Taylor, suggested that he not go to China, but that he stay and train. Now, Henry's daughter happened to marry Hudson Taylor's son, which was kind of an interesting thing. Henry Guinness also founder, founded the East London Missionary Training Institute, later known as Harley College, and still operating as Cliff College, training missionaries. He was the founder of Regions Beyond Missionary Union, and he was the founder of the Livingston Inland Mission in Africa. So he was really into it. He was really into it. He spent two years preaching in Canada, and one of the guys that was converted under his ministry was a guy named A.B. Simpson. So A.B. Simpson is in the line. Now, Henry Groton Guinness's great-grandson is a gentleman named Oz Guinness. For those of you who are aware of some of the current authors. He's an, an older author, but Os Guinness is a current descendant that we have of him. So, C. Benson Barnett. We don't know about too much about him. He was also a close friend of Hudson Taylor, served with him in China, in the China Inland Mission. He was the founder, sent by Hudson Taylor, home from China, to found a missionary training college called Sydney Missionary and Bible Training College. So he was a friend of Hudson's who came to him. The second campus currently is called the Roberts Dale Campus for Stanley Dale and Fred Roberts, who died in the Amazon region of Brazil in 1935. Now, A.B. Simpson, we know him. He wrote over 120 hymns. He's far uh, deep into the sending of missionaries. He founded Nyack Bible College, not as Nyack in 1882, but when it moved to Nyack, New York in 1897, it was named Nyack Missionary Training College. Now, A.B. Simpson appointed a man named William Stevens to be the principal of Nyack, in the 1900s, and then he sent him out to a place in Kansas to set up a, to found a Bible college there that was called Midland Bible Training Institute. Midland Bible Training Institute was set up in 1920, and one of the students was a gentleman named Ellie Maxwell. And in the middle of Ellie Maxwell's studenthood there, about a year into a two-year system, some farmer up in Alberta called William Stevens and said, I've got six guys here, six young people who are just really interested in the Bible. Could, do you have a student that you could send up here who might be able to teach some Bible? I just don't have time because I'm on the prairie all the time farming. So William Stevens went to L.A. Maxwell and told him, and he said, oh, yeah, I need to finish my training first before I go. So a year later, Ellie Maxwell went and became the co-founder of Prairie Bible Institute, 
along with that farmer, who was named Fergus Kirk, they together founded it. And so the question now from all of those different schools and all of those different people was what was it that they taught? We know that they had a culture of scarcity. We know that they had a hunger for souls, but what was it that was taught? Well, they, <clears throat> several different writers, um, one guy named Harold, War, uh, Harold Fuller um, wrote about it, and he said that, that the desired, promoted, and fully expected outcomes were discipleship, worship, spiritual warfare, and service. That, he wrote that about Prairie Bible Institute. But when we look at the... I, I had this harebrained idea to call Prairie Bible Institute and ask them if they could send me some information. And I got in touch with the uh, archivist in the library. And I, I wasn't expecting anything. I, you know, I honestly didn't expect her to get back with me. But about two days later... I get an email full of scans of, for example, I have a scan of the first handwritten prospectus of curriculum for Prairie Bible Institute in 1921. Before it was ever founded, Ellie Maxwell had this written out. I said, wow. And then I looked at the rest of the stuff that she gave me, and it was... Uh, from 1921 to 1931, all of the, the student manuals, all the curriculum uh, handbooks and everything so that I could get a, a handle on what was being taught. It was really a fun thing. It was, and it was all the original copies or the originals just scanned in. It was really a fun thing. So as I went through it, they demanded a surrendered, sacrificial, and resourceful lifestyle. One of the things that they did was they planned their life for four years. It started out as a two-year, went to a three-year, and ended up as a four-year with a possibility of five because it took that long to prepare students to be those who went and stayed and died. Another thing that Nick Ripkin points out is that what we as missionaries need to do when we go somewhere is be able to say, if you want to know how to live for Jesus, watch me. If you want to know how to die, watch me. And that is what brought the revival in, um, I don't remember which people it is, with Stanley Dale. It was when they saw him die that they realized, wow, there is a God. And he loves me. And it was the same way with some of the other missionaries that, that we have looked at throughout history. What was it that brought about the life of Christ in the soul of the uh, Alka Indians? It was seeing how those men died and then seeing how their wives came back and laid down their lives to bring the gospel to them. The church's first business is missions. And that's either evangelizing or discipling. Because everybody that you ever meet either needs to be discipled or needs to be evangelized so they can be discipled. There's no other people anymore. It used to be that there was Jews and Gentiles. And then for a while, 
for a short period of time, there was Jews and Christians and pagans. Now, it's believers and unbelievers. It's those who are in Christ and those who are not. And Ephesians makes it really clear that there's no distinction within the body of Christ. There's no CMA people and Lutheran people. There's believers and unbelievers. The third thing was a soldierly discipline. I wonder where that came from. It's been there for a while, I think. An objective, unbiased, biblical theology not fraught with distinctives. And these are quotes from L.A. Maxwell and Dorothy Miller. So, an objective, unbiased, biblical theology not fraught with distinctives. And a faithful, enduring, abundant fruit-bearing. That they bore fruit, that bore fruit, that bore fruit, that bore fruit. We don't want to be among that generation where Joshua died and there arose a generation that knew not the Lord. Where Eric died and there arose a generation that knew not the Lord. Where Eli died and there arose a generation that knew not the Lord. We don't want that. We want the generations to do what generations normally do. It's called reproduce. So the classes and the methods that they had were pretty unique. The, in the four-year extensive, they had a four-year extensive, intensive, and comprehensive Bible course. It was taught completely different than anything we've ever noticed or ever heard of, actually. It was, it's called, in the secular world, it's called the Socratic Method. And the Socratic Method of teaching is where there is a dialogue between student and teacher based on questions and answers. It's not a knowledge dump. It's not a lecture. It's not reading. It's a dialogue between it. And so here's how it worked out with them. And the entire school was in on this class. It wasn't that, that some of the people had it. For four years, they went through the entire Bible, every single book, and there was about six books that they went through a second time because they felt like it had such an impact on missions doing this. So each individual, the teachers and the students, the staff, the janitor, whoever, they're all in this class. Each individual studies on his own and develops a position comes to conclusions, finds a context, develops an application, and finally, in class, and you guys will just love this, in class, each individual presents their positions and conclusions and application to the class publicly in an understandable, humble manner to the rest of the class, including all the teachers. So each of you have the opportunity, get up in front of the class, say, in my study of 1 John 3, these are my conclusions, this is the position I take on it, and so forth. And then the conversation starts. You start asking questions. 
you want to raise possible concerns about their conclusions. You want to point out possible reasoning flaws. And this is all done with humility, with love, with concern and care, so that there's not any division made in this. But on the other hand, none of these points, and if, I'm, if I get to it, I'll, I'll read it to you. They say that if you have any intention of bringing denominational points and issues to the class, you're expected to withdraw. You are unable to express denominational issues. What we want is a biblical knowledge. They want you to own the Bible, not the statement of faith of your denomination. So they ask uh, possible concerns, point out possible reasoning flaws, brings up other possible views and perspectives and challenges. And so as these questions are asked, each individual then is required to respond, to defend, to explain. Can you imagine the learning <laughs> that takes place in a situation like that? And then, in still a humble and pleasant manner, the student responds, defends, and answers, and the cycle is repeated as necessary. And each person in the class participates in both sides of the dialogue. And again, some books are done a second time with a specific view towards missions. Now, this is where the idea of the elements of thought and the um, standards of thought come into being, come into place. And I don't know if you've heard of those. For example, questions concerning the elements of thought are things like, what is the author trying to accomplish? What is his central aim? So that element is purpose. Um, another element of thought is questions. What questions is he raising? What questions is he addressing? Um, inferences and conclusions. How did the author reach his conclusion? How did I reach my conclusion about that? Is there another way to understand this information? What's the main idea? Do I understand this well enough to explain it to somebody else? Am I, what am I taking for granted? What assumptions am I making? What assumptions has the author made? So these are the types of questions that you get asked. You know, when, when Paul says whatever he says, is he drawing some assumptions that you disagree with? If you disagree with Paul's assumptions, why do you disagree with it? Um, there is a theological position out there. I'm not going to make a statement as to who it is, but they believe that only the red-lettered words are the actual words of God in the Bible. And so anything else in the Word of God has to agree with those red letters before they're true. So for, for example, all the epistles of Paul have to be compared to the red letters of God because if Paul disagrees with the red letters of Jesus, then that's where we don't believe him. Well, what assumption are you making with that? That Paul's word is not necessarily the word of God. That it's, that it's not the word of God. They also believe that the Old Testament has no bearing other than historicity. So now you have three levels of Scripture. One level that is the word of God, one level that may be the word of God, and one level that is not the word of God, all in the Bible. That's a tough position for us as Christians to hold when Jesus called the Old Testament the word of God, 
And Peter called Paul's writings the Word of God. So we, we, it's, it's a difficult situation to be in. And so those are some of the elements of thought. Then we have the standards of thought like clarity, accuracy, precision. And what we do with those is our intent is, for example, if I made a statement, you'd say, well, I don't quite understand that. Could you make it clearer? And so now I have to rethink it in a way that I can make it clear. A lot of times when people say, can you, can you define that? Our tendency is to describe it. Well, there's a big difference between a description and a definition. So it challenges us. So these things are challenges. It takes a, a pretty strong individual to stand up to that kind of training. And we begin to see why Stanley Dale was able to stand up, because that's the same kind of training that he had at Sydney, the same kind of training that the guys had at Nyack, the same kind of training that Ellie got at Midland, and the same kind of training that Don Richardson and um, Elizabeth Elliot got at Prairie. That's how they trained, did their Bible training. They didn't have a class in theology and a class in doctrine and a class in prophecy and a class in eschatology. They didn't have that. They went to the Word of God, and that's where they stood. That's where they went. And that's how they came to those conclusions. They had other classes. They had history classes. Ancient history, medieval history, and church and Christian history. They had classes on missions the realities of mission, the successes and failures of missions, encouragements, hardships, all taught by missionaries that traveled through. They didn't come and give flowery, um, money-raising speeches. They came and taught missions. This is the reality of missions. Uh, biblical geography. Ah, you'll love this one. You guys will just love this one. The art and habit of reading aloud. Nathan and I have talked often about the lack of the ability of students at Ellerslie to read aloud. <laughs> Christian apologetics having to do with the faith and aberrant Christianity, Christian cults and cults having to do with truth and discernment. They were taught those things. They were taught evangelism and discipleship. And I initially thought when they talked about the class that they had on sermon preparation until I got the book, a book by a guy named Broadus called Preparing and Giving Sermons, that it wasn't on how to prepare a sermon. It was how to prepare a life so that the sermon flowed out of it when there was a need for it. Rather than opening the Bible to prepare a sermon, we open the Bible to prepare our life, and when the time comes, the Word of God is present to be used by the Holy Spirit to speak. Just like when Paul went to Athens, he had no idea he was going to Athens. He didn't know that he was going there, but he got dropped off there inadvertently by accident. He was wandering around and noticed that there was a bunch of idols, and it says that he got grieved in his heart seeing that the whole city was given over to idolatry, he made some comments about some idol that said, to an unknown God. And the Epicureans and the Stoics said, why don't you come up and talk to us? Tell us what you have to say. And he didn't say, you know, is there an internet cafe nearby that I could spend a few hours, you know, and 
Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub or something like that. Or, or maybe he had his uh, logo software with him, so all he had to do is type in the right request and it would give him a sermon outline with hymns to sing and what time to take the offering and when to pray and all of that stuff. He didn't have that. He had a prepared life. Do you ever see Jesus preparing a sermon or Paul or Peter or John or Apollos or Philip or Stephen? None of them did. They spoke from a prepared life. English language, grammar, composition, and spelling. <laughs> they taught that because they knew that a missionary was going to have to write books, write home, make translations. So he'd have to understand grammar. He'd have to understand right spelling to, be com to communicate well. Because if you spell a word wrong, sometimes it can cause a problem. And ministering to children. So those were the, that was what they learned. They had this massive, four-year, huge, all-consuming Bible class. And then they had some history, missions, you know, some technical things. 90% of their class was that class, that dialogue on, the, on developing a base of knowledge of the Scripture. So I want to encourage you guys that being a missionary is not an easy thing. In reality, being a Christian is not an easy thing. If you look at it, the way that Jesus put it, you know, unless you forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things so that I might know him. Christianity is not an easy thing, but it's the best. So I just want to encourage you guys to recognize the level of preparation that it took to do what Stanley Dale did and those who followed in his footsteps. It's not a light thing. It's not an easy thing. And I don't want to be among those or to have you guys be among those who attrit early, who drop out, have to go through therapy or whatever they call it now to get your life back together after the devastation of being on the mission field. And the reality of it is that there's four areas of fitness that are not, not covered when missionaries go to the mission field. There's the issue of spiritual fitness, emotional fitness, mental fitness, and physical fitness. There was a time in the 50s and 60s when the number one cause of death on the mission field was heart attacks from lack of physical fitness when, you were, when the missionary was called to do a, an emergency thing, like they'd get a call from a, a village 10 miles away that there'd been a fire and a bunch of people got burned, and so the missionary gets all of his medical stuff out, puts it in his pack, goes running off across, you know, up the hills and through the jungle and drops dead. That was the major cause of death. Major cause of death. So I want to encourage you guys to be men and women of God. To get, go deep into his word. To not be those type of Christians that Dorothy was talking about when she was talking about those who are, have a, or, or Ellie was talking about, who were soft. Soft in their faith. Soft in their commitment. Soft. 
soft, soft. I want you to be strong. I want you to be sturdy, able to stand firm. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us such examples of men and women who would have nothing other than following you. Lord, I pray for these students that they would have nothing else besides you. That their, their sole goal and intention in life would be to know you and to make you known. So Lord, we thank you. We commend our ways to you. We ask you, Lord, to give us that direction, that provision, and that protection so that we can be able to be used by you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.